back to Stand Up with Pete Dominic on Indy. Sirius XM 104. Well, we want to continue our conversation about the 10th anniversary of the Iraq War and very, uh, very excited to welcome on our next guest. He's joined this conversation uh, a few times before. He's a retired United States Army colonel who served as the chief of staff to Secretary of State Colin Powell when he was National Security by, uh, Chief and when he was Secretary of State, if I have that right. He's now a distinguished adjunct professor of government and public policy at William & Mary. He's also a Vietnam veteran, helicopter pilot in Vietnam who logged uh, thousand, over 1,000 combat hours in a year, uh, apparently. And uh, he joins us now, Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson. Colonel Wilkerson, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me on. Do you mind if I ask you about your Vietnam service? I was reading about some things on Wikipedia, and I, I'd like to ask you about them. Surely. Uh, it says that you, uh, on Wikipedia, it says that you uh, you flew an OH-6A KUS observation helicopter, logged about a, uh, 1,100 combat hours over a year. It said that there you were involved in an incident where you prevented a war crime by purposely placing your helicopter between a position that was full of civilians and another helicopter that wanted to launch an attack on that position. Is that true? That's pretty much the way it happened. I, we, we flew often in what we call hunter-killer teams, and that meant that there was an armed Cobra helicopter, AH-1G, overhead, and you were down on the treetops and sometimes even below the treetops, and what you were looking for was the enemy. And from time to time, the Cobra would... Uh, uh, get a little anxious about shooting its rockets or its 40 millimeter cannon at the uh, targets on the ground and you were on the ground and you knew what the target was you knew for example that in this case it was uh, children and women and uh, so you you stopped you were in charge the little bird on top of the trees was in charge of the mission so you stopped it uh, and, and if you if you had to put yourself in between the target and the cobra you did so to stop it what was the conversation like with you and the other pilot of the Cobra there? Um, a little bit uh, dicey because at that point I was the first lieutenant and he was a captain. Uh, so it's a little it's a little dicey. Even though you're in charge, technically he outranks you. So uh, you know you you're on the radio saying uh, what the target is and you're saying no fire, and he's saying get out of the way. I'm shooting, and uh, you're in between. So if he's going to shoot, he's going to shoot you. What was the conversation like when both of you got back to base? Uh, a little tense. Um, there were a couple of people in my squadron who were, uh, shall we say, trigger-happy almost all the time. And I, I tried my best to stay away from them. As a lieutenant, um, you know, newly caught, so to speak, uh, sometimes it was difficult. But uh, if I had my choice, I'd pick someone else to cover me on a particular mission. Well, it's... it's uh... It's fascinating to hear about your service in Vietnam. And uh, do you still do you still fly? Do you ever pilot a helicopter these days? Oh, I wish. I wish. Um, it was fun. I loved it. I finished with about three thousand hours and uh, uh, walked out of a helicopter in Korea. And uh, oh, I guess it was about nineteen eighty-five, and never got in one again. Why not? Uh, it just became, in the Army, it just became too much of a challenge. You, you had to fly 50% of the time. You had to be an infantryman 50% of the time. And, frankly, it was becoming so difficult to stay competent in the very uh, sophisticated technologically helicopters like the Apache and the Blackhawk and so forth 
but it was, it, it was almost impossible to do that. Plus, the Army changed the way it looked at aviators. It made them a branch, a separate branch. And I had a choice. I could be a separate branch aviator and stay in helicopters all the time, or I could be an infantryman, return to my home branch, and I, I chose to return to my home branch and be an infantryman. When uh, Did you also serve in the Korean War? No, I didn't. Uh, uh, missed that one. <laughs> I was born in 45, so I was only about five years old when that started. Oh, forgive my uh, my ignorance there, Colonel Wilkerson. I'm 37, and I haven't served anybody ever. Uh <laughs> Let me ask you about when you came back. We're talking. We're working with uh, the Iraq and Afghan uh, Afghanistan veterans of America uh, all this week and and every week really to advocate for uh, for issues that veterans deserve to have have uh, justified. Obviously, I know that you support them and agree with them. Uh, and their uh, matter of fact, and, um, I'm going to the to the Hill to the Congress this evening uh, along with IAVA Iraq and Afghan Veterans Association and Paul Rykoff uh, to try and demand uh, better better treatment for our veterans that's awesome that's great to hear that you're working with them and uh we were just with paul just a couple days ago in washington dc helping them launch that this uh, storm the hill initiative i wanted to ask you though again your personal experience coming back from vietnam seeing what you saw clearly um what was it like coming back from that war for you well for me it wasn't that bad because i i was still in of course and i came back and went right to fort walters texas and began to teach other young men uh how to fly helicopters um, it was, I, as I looked around me, it was a little weird. It was strange. It was bizarre because there was almost, uh, other than the protests in the streets, of course, which in that, at that time were growing rather rather strong, there was no recognition uh, that there was a veteran, that there were people coming back from the war. It was like, <laughs> it was like you just went back to your normal duties again. You know, where have you been? I've been in Vietnam. Oh, walk away. Um, it, there, there was no warm welcome, as it were. There was no one in the airport clapping when you got off the plane. Indeed, it was as normal as it as it could have been. Uh, so it, it, it was kind of bizarre in that respect. It was almost, other than the protest, it was almost as if the nation was just moving on, uh, unconscious of Vietnam. Uh, we're going to get specific about you know your 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 job, what you did with uh, with Colin Powell and, and and the march and the run up to uh, what happened in Iraq. But but I just ask you, as a man of your age, as a member of the military who served in Vietnam, it's hard for me, as a 37 year old guy whose dad was in the Army Reserve, but my father very very anti war even then, uh, and certainly uh, kind of a conservative guy, uh, Lawrence, but but really. Uh, a very anti these wars, and I and I think that a lot of certainly men and obviously women of his generation, of your generation, have similar beliefs on war after Vietnam. I wonder how your generation allowed Iraq to happen after those fifty-eight thousand names on that wall. You don't have to have ever served. You don't have to have been alive. If you go to that wall, the Vietnam Memorial in Washington D.C you got to wonder how people who lived through it, especially those who served, and many of, uh, of which you served were very much against this war, obviously, how you could possibly uh, believe in, in, in another war which it doesn't take uh, military expertise to know could very well uh, evolve, devolve into uh, an insurgency similar uh, to what we fought in Vietnam, an asymmetric warfare. How do you think your generation can really defend that? Of course. Um, With tremendous respect. No, no, of course it's 
2020 hindsight is wonderful. Um, you see, I'm I'm sort of a historian, and I teach presidential decision making since World War II. So I'm deeply steeped in, in in that manner of looking at power and power management. And let me tell you that every single conflict that we have been involved in, even little brush fire things like Grenada, support of the uh, Contras against the Sandinistas by the Reagan administration, you name it, has been called by the Congress and by certain members of the American public, another Vietnam. Don't get involved in that. We have used military power more often since the end of the Cold War than we ever did during the Cold War, the entire half century of the Cold War. We have done things like Panama. We have done things like you don't even know about, covert operations. We have done things like the first Gulf War, like the second Gulf War. These are incidents that uh, in every case someone stands up on the floor of the Senate or the House or both or from some think tank or whatever and says another Vietnam shouldn't be doing this. So to say that we didn't learn any lessons is correct in the strictest sense, but in a more... I think relevant sense, we have become a war state. We have become a national security state. The thing that identifies America today is war. It's not commerce. It's not trade. It's not stability. It's not peace. It's war. We've been at war for almost what we have for a dozen years, and there's no end in sight. But that's not a perspective that most Americans would agree identifies American America. I think that's a perspective that the rest of the world may believe, Absolutely. though. Absolutely. Absolutely. We are the empire to the rest of the world, and what we give the rest of the world is star troopers. If you remember Battlestar Galactica or Star Wars or any of those uh, uh, movies, films, we are the empire. That's the way the rest of the world sees us, and they identify us more at the point of a bayonet or at the drop of a bomb, or increasingly uh, at the buzz of a drone overhead, than they do any other aspect of our existence. And that's a shame, but that's what's happened. If you want to continue with that comparison, uh, is it fair to say that Dick Cheney is Darth Vader? Uh, The Sith Lord, more likely. We're talking to Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson. Uh, He was, uh, well, you tell us your relationship to Colin Powell, where it began and what you did. Well, I started out when he uh, came out of the White House after being Ronald Reagan's national security advisor, got his four-star, and went down to Forces Command in Atlanta, Georgia, the largest Army command. I joined him there. Six months later, we moved up to Washington. He became George H.W. Bush's chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I worked with him there. And then uh, he left the service, uh, retired, and I stayed on for another four years and was director and deputy director of the Marine Corps War College at Quantico, Virginia. And then I joined him. Um, when I retired in 97 in a private capacity and worked for him for about three years. And then in December 2000, he asked me to join him in the State Department, where I first worked on the policy planning staff. And then in August 2002, I became his chief of staff. You uh, have talked a lot about your role in the run-up to the war. Everybody remembers uh, Colin Powell at the U.N. holding up the vial. Um, Of the intelligence that you were privy to, uh, the intelligence and uh, that Colin Powell, you know, presented much of that day and, and, and at other times and, and other uh, arenas with congressmen, policymakers, et cetera. What did you think of that intelligence then? What do you think of that intelligence now? Everyone whom we were cloistered with, and that was part of our problem, you could call it groupthink, um, led by George Tennant, the director of 
Central Intelligence and John McLaughlin, his deputy, and accompanied from time to time by the intelligence representatives to the DCI of Jordan, Israel, France, Germany, the United Kingdom, and others who had reasonably competent intelligence services, agreed that they didn't agree on the specifics. There was a tremendous battle over the specifics, but they all agreed that Saddam Hussein would never have gotten rid of all of his weapons of mass destruction, and they agreed on that point because they all understood that his principal enemy was Iran, and they fought a desperate, brutal war from 1980 to 1988 with Iran, with Iraq uh, and Iran in it, and lots of casualties, and almost like World War One in the in Western Asia. And he would never, for that reason, give up his WMD. So when we went into the cloistered arena of George Tenet to get Powell ready for the U.N. presentation, we had about five or six days, and the only people that Tenet allowed to get into that group were people who believed that way. Now, mm-hmm. I've had <laughs> literally dozens of people come up to me afterwards and say, well, we knew he didn't have them. We knew. And my question to them was, well, where were you? You weren't in that group. You definitely weren't in that group. Now, whether the DCI and the DDCI screened that group closely so that the only people whom Powell and I and others, for that matter, Condi Rice, Steve Hadley, the deputy, were exposed to were the people that believed the way Tennant did, I don't know. My research since then has showed that it's very likely that was the case. But my point is simply that lots of people, including the Congress, who voted um, something like 270 to uh, 52 or something like that for the AUMF, Um, even the Congress believed that the October 2002 National Intelligence Estimate was, was accurate, reflected accurately what Saddam had. And that was the basis of our presentation. And you ask me what I think of it now, I, I look back on it uh, after having been involved in it and also, as I said, having done a lot of research since then, I think uh, it was uh, preposterous what we put together. And it was preposterous essentially for three reasons. One, I've already described, the group think. Everybody said, in essence, who gives a damn what the specifics are because when we get there, we'll find something and then no one will care what the specifics were. That was the group thing. The second thing was that we were in such a, as I said before, cloistered group. We only had the true believers in that group. That is to say, we didn't let any dissent into that group. Tenet even engineered a meeting, that I, I found this out much later, in Washington to confirm, for example, that the aluminum tubes were for centrifuges in an atomic program rather than something else. And he made sure that he convened the meeting on a day that the Department of Energy expert wouldn't be present because he was out of town. And so the person that the Department of Energy sent to that meeting was not empowered to argue, wasn't capable of arguing, and didn't dissent. So Tennant got his consensus in the American intelligence community that the aluminum tubes were for an atomic program, a nuclear program. So I I learned these things later, though. And then the third reason, um, we were already at war with Iraq. Norm Schwarzkopf signed a ceasefire agreement, not a peace agreement, in the desert in 1991. We own the top one-third and the lower one-third of Iraq, along with the British. The French had fallen off but the British were still with us in the no-fly zones. Saddam Hussein had violated 16, 17 UN Security Council resolutions, 
which for all practical purposes were lying tattered on the floor. So there was a reason, at least superficially and legally, to resume that conflict if the powers that had started it in the first place, including the United Nations, agreed uh, that the things that were going on were not what were supposed to be going on, given the agreement in the ceasefire, busting of sanctions and so forth, which Saddam was certainly doing. So I, sometimes I have a hard time with people who say there's no legal argument for the war, even though I do see it now as a war of aggression, and therefore I guess you'd have to say it was illegal. At the same time, I see that the war, the first war, never ended. The first war that was yeah. sanctioned by the United Nations, and what was happening was we were picking up that sanctioning and going on and eliminating Saddam Hussein. So there are two sides to the legal argument. But on the intelligence side, there was a lot of lying, and this is what has disturbed me so much. There was a great deal of lying, and I can't, I can't hold back from saying that two of the biggest liars were the director of central intelligence and his deputy, John McLaughlin, because I now know that some of the pillars of Powell's presentation, that Tennant and McLaughlin stood by like rocks of Gibraltar, were identified to them by their own people as having been specious, as having been unreliable, as having been not solid as the Rock of Gibraltar. Are you talking about people like Ahmed Chalabi and people like Rafid Ahmed Elwan Al-Janabi, codenamed Curveball? Yes, ab the latter, absolutely. I mean, I've talked to Tyler Drumheller, who was the European Division Chief for the CIA, who has told me that he talked to both Tennant and McLaughlin immediately prior to Powell's presentation and told them how unreliable this single source was for this monumental thing that Powell was going to say at the United Nations, and neither Tennant or McLaughlin ever revealed any of that to me. Let me let me um, let me be clear about that. You're telling me that you talked to uh, former CIA official Tyler Drumheller, Heller, mm -hmm. who knew uh, best about this guy Curveball, who said who said at one point, "quote uh, He was a guy trying to get his green card." Essentially, uh, he told that information he shared that information with tenant tenant knew that information but didn't share it with you guys colin powell went up and uh some will say uh, even uh, uh, colin powell himself that he uh, really hurt his reputation after that after relying on that on that uh evidence and uh, and george tenant knew it uh, that's the only conclusion i can come to and john mclaughlin knew it also and i i say john because tenant was a political animal uh, you, you had to watch Tennant because Tennant could float with the political winds. John was an intelligence professional, 30-something years. I trusted John. Um, every time Tennant told me something that I thought was pretty unbelievable, I would go to John and I'd ask him for confirmation. Um, John was the professional on the scene. And so to have both of them in agreement, and both of them in agreement in front of Dr. Rice, in front of her deputy, Steve Hadley, in front of our deputy, Rich Armitage, and most of all, in front of the Secretary of State. That was a powerful weapon. Have you talked to John McLaughlin? Do you know if Colin Powell has talked to John McLaughlin? I, I don't. Uh, I know that following the presentation at the U.N., both George and John would call the department from time to time and talk to Deputy Secretary Armitage or to Secretary Powell. Uh, and reveal to them that another, uh, as Powell used to say, another part of his presentation had just collapsed. This this occurred all through the summer of 2003. Have you talked to John McLaughlin? I have not. I have not talked to John McLaughlin since. Why not? Don't want to. Afraid of what I'd hear.
what do you? I don't understand him. This guy well, sounds I, like. There's no question from having watched. He's a what a CNN uh, uh, advisor now. I've listened to him. There's no question he's not going to tell me the truth. So, in terms of being afraid of what you hear, you, you're afraid he'd be dishonest, and that would be disappointing. Exactly. Got it. We're talking to Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, retired colonel. He's now uh, a distinguished a a professor at William and Mary, and. We're, we're talking, of course, this is the 10th anniversary of the Iraq War. You know, I, I got to ask you this question. I just had on, just before you, an Iraqi-American, uh, a, a man who was born in Baghdad, who was there during the invasion. He now lives in America uh, with his wife, and he's written a piece uh, basically saying that he thinks America should uh, apologize and compensate for uh, Iraq, apologize to Iraq and compensate Iraq for the damage uh, that was done to that country. And he says he's saying that from his American, from an American perspective, he's an American taxpayer. Do you think that we should apologize uh, for what we did there? Well, I'm not. Uh, I'm. I'm not sure that that's. I'm not sure that that would accomplish anything. Well, if if, it, if, if we want to do something just for you know, as we apologize supposedly through Madeleine Albright's auspices to the Iranians for the overthrow of. Mohammed Mossadegh in 1953. I'm I'm not exactly sure what that accomplishes. His second point, reparations, if you will, um, is not such a bad point because that does accomplish something. But at the same time, I'd have to say it would be extremely difficult and probably long and drawn out, and lawyers would quibble over it for decades as to how you would determine things. Because frankly, one of our problems in the post conflict, uh, that is to say, after the statute came down and really an occupation began, one of our significant problems was not what we had done to Iraq. We really had not done that much to Iraq at that point. But what Saddam had done to Iraq in the years between the last time Clinton bombed, which I believe was 98, if I recall, and the time we invaded in 2003, what Saddam had done was allow the infrastructure of a fairly technologically sophisticated and engineering-based state, secular state, to go completely to pot. That's one of the reasons that we had so many problems standing up any kind of viable infrastructure in Iraq, because the CIA, frankly, here again, it's screwed up big time, which seems to be its forte, had not analyzed that infrastructure is being as badly damaged and corrupt as it was. So when we got there, there was hardly a single ministry in Iraq that was doing anything, whether it was high power lines across the country, pipelines, didn't matter what you were looking at, it was all in a state of disrepair that no one had predicted. And this was from Saddam's neglect. He was not. Well, what, what but, but hold on, couldn't have some of that been, and I don't know, I'm not trying to argue or correct you, but couldn't have some of that been because of the sanctions that we, we put on that oh, country? Unquestionably, it was because of the sanctions, but two, it was because of Saddam's decisions vis-a-vis -vis those sanctions. Okay. The UN Oil for Food Program, for example, had lots of money in it. When, when we got there, as I recall, it had something like $9.8 billion left in it. What Saddam was doing with that money, though, was he was spending it for building new palaces and on Uday and Kusay and other things on breaking the sanctions, because he was breaking the sanctions. He had front companies all across the world who were buying armaments for him, conventional armaments, so that he could you know, keep his uh, conventional forces up. Um, so 
there was a possibility, particularly during the last four or five years of the sanctions, when they were smartened up a little bit, that he could have diverted some of that money to more meaningful purposes. He could have diverted it to improving the infrastructure, water, sewage, transportation, schools, communications, and so forth, and he didn't. He chose not to do that. Unquestionably, I don't mean to say that was the whole thing, unquestionably, the first Gulf War, what that damage did, what Clinton's four days of bombing in 98 did, contributed majorly to the infrastructure destruction. But we just simply didn't know how bad Iraq was in terms of its infrastructure, especially compared to what it had been prior to the first Gulf War, probably the most sophisticated infrastructure in that region of the world. I mean, it, what does that say, though, about, about our intelligence or even our, you know... Well, it says it stinks. I mean, it's one thing to, <laughs> it's one thing to, 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 to you know, question uh, whether or not a country has capabilities, weapons of mass um, infrastructure is not top secret. No. I would imagine that you could get some intelligence on infrastructure from a satellite photo. I have no, again, I have no idea what I'm talking about, Colonel Wilkinson. I'm a stand-up comedian. Maybe. No, but, if you're focused on that, you're absolutely right. Apparently, from what I saw, we weren't focused on it. We were focused only on watching ammunition supply points and transit routes there too, and missile sites and so forth. We weren't focused on watching the yeah. kinds of things that would tell us what kind of condition Iraq was in and what would. What would we meet if we were there and had to, you know, perform as an occupier? You almost uh, had to we start hear, from scratch. We still hear from many of the architects of the Iraq War. Uh, many of them are, are doing very, very well, making lots of money uh, as, uh, as commentators, as working at think tanks, uh, and some still in government, of course. Uh, and haven't really, I think, had their credibility compromised. They're when leading we, us down the primrose path, they think, to war with Iran, even today. What would you say to to uh, to uh, my audience, to the American public, in terms of their credibility? What would you say to them in terms of you know the things that they say uh, about future conflicts, about future intelligence? Because when I hear your disparaging of the CIA and, and intelligence, I mean it's like they used words like slam dunk and bulletproof. When we hear the drums on Iran, on Syria, on anywhere else, North Korea, even Russia. Um, you, you have to listen to who's beating those drums, I think. You do. And, and let, me, let me be very clear on this, because as I said, I teach this, and, and I teach the covert side of the House as well as the overt side, that is to say CIA clandestine ops as well as, well as war. And in every instance, every instance, without exception, from 1954, you look at the CIA, and you see in the bowels of the CIA pe people who dissent. You see people who are really doing the work of a professional intelligence analyst, and they dissent. And what happens is when that dissent gets up to the very top, to the tenants and McLaughlins of this yeah. world, and they get cheek and jowl with the presidents, then that intelligence gets tweaked and turned and twisted, whether it's Vietnam and the Tonkin Gulf incident or whether it's 2003 and Saddam Hussein and WMD, to match the policy that the president wants to pursue. So the real problem is not the intelligence professionals who in many cases are beavering away and doing their job, thanklessly so in many cases. It's the people at the top in the intelligence services and the people at the top in the White House who use whatever is produced for their own nefarious purposes 
rather than for informing the national interest of this country. And and evidence of that to me, because I've been doing this show for almost five years, talking to people like yourselves who are inside, who are intelligent, who are experienced. And the evidence to me, hearing you today and hearing uh, the one, the lone Republican senator who voted against authorization for the invasion of Iraq is a guy named Lincoln Chafee. He's now the governor of uh, Rhode Island, right? Right. He, you know, you talked about the presentation you were given by McLaughlin and and Tenet. Lincoln Chafee voted against the, the authorization. I asked him why. He wrote about it in his book as well. He said, I went to Langley. I was given a presentation. They didn't even try to convince me. It wasn't convincing. They took no posture of convincement. Those are the guys that it sounds like you're describing. Yes, yes. I, one of the things I ask my students to do at Women Mary when they present a case study on a particular decision, I ask them to look for the dissenters. Um, find the dissenters and find out how the president and his minions ostracized them, whether it's George Ball and Vietnam and Lyndon Baines Johnson or whether it's Chile and Kissinger and Nixon, one of the most one of the most ignominious experiences in the American tableau. Uh, we essentially caused the assassination of an honorable man, chief of staff of the Chilean Armed Forces, Rene Schneider. We overthrew a duly elected, democratically elected president of Chile, Allende, all in the fear of communism. Uh, this by two people, Kissinger and Nixon, who who admitted. In, in transcript conversation that they didn't know crap about Latin America. Uh, here they are overthrowing a government. Um, all the way up to things like uh, the Congo and Angola, and my students look for the dissenter, and they try to explain mm. how the dissenter got it right and how wow. the authorities over him made sure that his view or her view didn't make it through to the decision-making. I would like to be in your classroom at William & Mary. How fascinating that must be. Two more quick questions for our guest, Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson. Uh, Robert McNamara was the uh, Secretary of Defense during the Vietnam War. Most people know who he was. Um, before his death, he broke his long silence and admitted that he'd been, quote, wrong, terribly wrong about Vietnam. Do you think Donald Rumsfeld or any of the architects of the Iraq War will ever come uh, to that realization about Iraq before their deaths? I don't think so. I, I, I think Donald Rumsfeld can be described as one of his longtime compatriots described him to me one day. Donald Rumsfeld has one scale, one metric, and that metric, that scale says, if my personal power is increased by this action, it is good. If my personal power is decreased by this action, it is bad. Utterly amoral. I wouldn't say that about Robert McNamara. I've talked to Robert McNamara. I think the burden of the Vietnam War weighed so heavily on him, it actually stooped his shoulders. Describe Donald Rumsfeld in a word. Power mad. Uh, put a hyphen in there. <laughs> Dick Cheney. Hyper-nationalist. Sith Lord. <laughs> George W. Bush. Watch the Showtime uh, quote documentary unquote. It's almost a one-man show. It's Dick Cheney, and as I said to an audience the other day after I first saw it, you know, he proved uh, apparently that I was wrong in October 2005 when I said there was a cabal 
because a cabal takes more than one person. Cheney admits that he was the singular entity in the Bush administration's first term making all the important decisions. I mean, that's, you can't come away from that show without believing that Cheney thinks that. George W. Bush. Naive. When you have the opportunity to meet a family, a Gold Star family who's lost someone in Iraq, um, uh, what, what, what do you say to them? You being a Vietnam vet, you knowing what that loss is like very directly, uh, what do you say to them? It's even more difficult to talk to the people, for example, whom I met with a couple of weeks ago over at Walter Reed Bethesda Medical Complex, a triple amputee, a double amputee, a uh, young lady with PTSD. Um, it's extremely difficult to talk to them, and mostly I just hang my head and look down at the ground while they talk. One of the individuals said something to me I will never forget that struck my heart as a veteran, as a citizen, and as a human being. He looked me right in the eye and he said, you know when the dog and pony shows come over here, when the congressmen come to visit, when they all come in here and they want to thank me for my service, I look at them and I say, don't thank me for my service. I'm conflicted over that. Thank me for my sacrifice. Well, we got to go. I appreciate you joining us. And uh, I uh, I thank you for, for your honesty and, your, uh, and, and being so candid. And... Um, I think you're a good man. Well, got a lot of forgiveness coming, I hope. <laughs> I think you're doing a pretty good job on that road. I hope to uh, to meet you, to shake your hand, and I really would love to take your class at William & Mary. I wonder how I can make that happen. Anytime. I don't know that they'd accept me. Colonel. <laughs> Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. Take we care. Appreciate it. Uh, we've been getting updates uh, from our friends at IAVA and legislators on IAVA's Storm the Hill initiative. We're going to be talking to Congressman Tim Walls of uh, Minnesota. He's a Democrat. He's also a Marine veteran. We'll be right back with the congressman.